Well, chances are, even if you've been living under a rock for the last three months, you've been hearing about the baby formula shortage. Well, here in New York City yesterday, our mayor, Eric Adams, uh, issued an official New York City state of emergency over the baby formula problem. And to understand the baby formula problem in a manner that's free of hysterics, that's free of hyperbolic ideological finger-pointing, the guy that I always turn to on this subject is Matt Stoller. Matt Stoller is a fascinating mind and an amazing person whose column, which I subscribe to on Substack, I use uh, to get all of the best ideas that I pass off as my own. If he ever wanted to sue me for plagiarism, then uh, this would be one short trial. But his most recent column on baby formula was one that was so in-depth, so detailed, and so comprehensive that I knew you, the listener, would never be fooled into thinking these were ideas or data that I came up with on my own. So I figured we'd invite him to uh, come on to talk about it. Matt Stoller is the director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project. He's author of the newsletter Big about the politics of market power and antitrust and the author of a, a wonderful book called Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. Matt, thanks so much for staying up a little later for us. Uh, it's great to talk to you again. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, before we get to the baby formula issue, the uh, column that you wrote on uh, Wednesday or Thursday of last week about the stock market, I found so interesting. I mean, we've seen the stock market go down, 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 uh, however many straight weeks of uh, of downturn and uh, a lot of people very concerned. And yet you in this column, you seem to take the, the view that the decline in the stock market might actually be a good thing. I think this is going to be something that strikes a lot of our listeners as counterintuitive. How can a stock market fall be a good thing? Right. Well, I think that we've been we've been sort of living in a in a fantasy land um, over the last couple of years since the since the Federal Reserve sort of since COVID started and the and the Fed printed trillions of dollars. Uh, we've been living in this strange era of just incredible speculation and all sorts of things, everything from old Nike sneakers to uh, you know, to cryptocurrencies, to private equity, to housing, and it and what's what's happened is there's been this disalignment between what is actually economically useful, things that we need, make, and need for our lives, and what is financially, you know, what the financial markets look like, and that's fundamentally unhealthy for society. So, um, you know, financial returns should really match at some level, economic value. And if it doesn't, then you're opening the door to lots of kind of strange speculative endeavors and cheating and arbitrage. Mm. And that's a lot of what we've been seeing over the last couple of years. So having a stock market, it's not that it's good that the stock market or financial markets go down, but it's it's useful that you kind of get rid of that mismatch between what is economically valuable and what the financial markets reflect. It is interesting, after a year of the pandemic, um, we saw a whole bunch of businesses still closed. We saw a whole bunch of folks without money and without jobs and a lot of folks unable to afford to pay the commercial rent for the businesses that they had in New York. 
And, you know, you talk to ordinary, average, everyday people on the street, and they were having a tough time, even with the government stimulus. And yet you'd look at the stock market, and you thought it only went in one direction, up, 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 and up. Uh, So I guess what you're saying is that maybe this is bringing the markets, the stock market, more into balance with where reality is, rather than where speculation leads the stock market to be. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, sort of broadly speaking, I think since the 1980s, we've gotten confused in our society about what wealth really is. Wealth is the ability to make things that we need, not um, not numbers on a, on a screen. And so, you know, when you have incredible amounts of, of value in speculative endeavors, but you can't make baby formula or you can't make uh, you know, personal protective equipment or, or, or a whole bunch of different pharmaceuticals or lots of things that are in shortage. Are you really wealthy or are those, do those, do those numbers on a screen really reflect actual uh, social wealth or, or is there something kind of off about, I mean, how we're, how we're thinking about the world and ultimately finance is kind of accounting for what we're doing in, reality. And if that accounting gets screwed up, which it kind of is when you Mm. have these shortages, and yet the screen reflects immense amounts of wealth, but you can't feed babies. There's something (laughs) that's really problematic about that. Uh, Now, if people are just doing with talking with Matt Stoller, he's the director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project. One of the um, look, I know you've been doing a lot of great work for a long time, but one of the things that first put you on my radar screen and I think on the radar screen of a lot of our listeners is the research that you've done into Amazon. Now, um, you've described Amazon, in my view, rightly so, as a monopoly and as uh, something that needs to be regulated much more stringently than it is now. But um, for people, for the uninitiated, we have a lot of conservatives listening to our show right now. A lot of people believe in things like free markets. For people listening to us now, if they don't want to buy their book on Amazon, they could buy it on BarnesandNoble.com. If they don't want to buy whatever whatever widget they want to purchase on Amazon, they could buy it on Walmart. Can you explain to the average ordinary person how is Amazon a monopoly if you can still buy things elsewhere, and why is that bad if Amazon seems to be delivering at the touch of a button – uh, so many of the things that we seem to want within a day or two. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, Amazon is obviously a really convenient um, and I, you know, I use it all the time. I think it's, you know, just like, like a lot of, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's great technology and, and everything. Um, if you, as a consumer, you can, you can get, most people can get stuff from multiple places, right? So from a consumer standpoint, it isn't necessarily a monopoly, although, Oftentimes it's it, it's harder to get stuff from other places, but from uh, you have to look at market power in um, from different perspectives. So if you're trying to sell something, right, or you're like the easiest one to look at is books because that's the oldest uh, part of sure. Amazon, but they control uh, you know forty fifty percent of of online sales in general to for retailers. So this applies to everything. But if you're an author and you can't sell on Amazon you're effectively foreclosed from the market, right? I mean, if you can't sell on Amazon, that's where a good chunk um, of of your customers are. No publisher would publish you if you can't sell on Amazon, right? And 
that's largely, especially if you're like a new author or, you know, if you've sold your books in a, I guess, very specialized, um, you know, booksellers might be able to do it. But most people that write books wouldn't be able to, uh, you, it wouldn't, wouldn't make sense to write a book if you can't sell on Amazon. Um, and that's true. Uh, that's true broadly across a lot of different categories. And so the way that Amazon exploits its monopoly power is not necessarily uh, the consumer doesn't necessarily notice it because the consumer can go and buy elsewhere. But it's to the to the uh, to the supplier, which is to say to the entity that's trying to sell their goods through Amazon, either as a wholesaler directly to Amazon or as a third party seller. And to those entities, Amazon asks for really large fees and fees in a number of different ways. And then they will surreptitiously raise prices to consumers. But Amazon is so powerful that not only can they raise prices to consumers, um, but they can actually force sellers that are selling through Amazon to to not uh, give better prices to any other third party seller, which means that even though the prices are being raised, you wouldn't know it as a consumer because the pro- Amazon is so powerful that they're they're forcing prices to be raised all over the economy, anywhere that you go for whatever, for whatever widget that you are trying to buy, the price is now higher just because Amazon told the widget maker, if you want to sell on Amazon, you have to raise your prices elsewhere. So you don't see it as a consumer, but prices are higher. And then the, the fees and the, the, they exploit the market power on the sort of producer side. We could do a whole three-hour show on Amazon alone, uh, but I just wanted to give folks a, a primer as to where you came down on this. Now, uh, let's talk about the issue of the day, uh, quite literally, baby formula. This, is, this whole shortage is very real to me with my wife and I having a, a six-month-old, and we've been living and dealing with this baby formula shortage for a couple of months, and it seems just in the last three weeks or so, the media has sort of woken up to what those of us that are new parents have been dealing with. Uh, You wrote the most uh, clear and descriptive explanation of the problem and how we got here that I've seen anywhere. What caused the problem with the baby formula shortage? How did this all begin? Yeah, so there's there's sort of, there's two main causes. The, The first cause is that the, the the market is very consolidated, and one of the company, the biggest baby uh, baby formula producer is Abbott Labs. They have about forty three percent of the market, and one of their and their main one of their main factory in Sturgis, Michigan. Um, they, the FDA shut it down because they were, you know, they had old old machinery and were um, that was kind of broken, and they were accidentally putting bacteria deadly bacteria into their products. And so, you know, the, the FDA did some inspections, there were whistleblowers, they were falsifying records, and finally FDA shut down the factory. When you shut down a factory like that, it has consequences in the, in the marketplace because there's not enough uh, baby formula, particularly not enough sort of specialized forms of baby formula that babies who have, um, who have allergies or have special gastrointestinal problems that they need. Um, so that's part one. But, and that people kind of get that. They understand, oh, the factory shut down, therefore right. there's not enough. But right. The, uh, the, the part that people don't get is there's a secondary market power problem here, which I think is actually, actually more important, and that is the distribution of baby formula is done in a way that, um, uh, that, that causes 
noticed that, that the distribution is monopolized. So the most, uh, about half baby formula is bought by the federal government or subsidized by the federal government. And the way the federal government buys baby formula is they say to the two major formula makers, there's three, but two main ones, uh, they say, we will give you, uh, if you give us a, a, a good, a reasonable price um, through rebates, we'll give you uh, monopolies over individual states. And so, you know, every state basically has one formula maker for that state. And, you know, essentially it's about half of your, half of the formula is bought, is bought by, the, by the federal government or by the government. So if you win that contract, you know, no retailer is really going to stock alternative baby formula. So you kind of get the monopoly over the whole state, all baby formula, regardless of whether you get government subsidized formula or not. And then uh, w what happens when Abbott can't fulfill their orders is all the Abbott states, they can't get formula because there's no infrastructure set up to deliver alternative forms of formula. So what you're seeing is we do have the like, there's not as much formula as we want nationally, but there is enough basically if we spread it around. The problem is that in a lot of Abbott states, there, there's, there's terrible shortages in states that are, that are Mead Johnson states. It's pretty much fine, um, but that um, that's a really that's the secondary problem. And now both of these problems together, with with the the shortage caused by the factory shutdown and then the shortage caused by the distribution, um, both of both of those monopoly problems, right, uh, where where you have very aggressive regulation, necessary of course because it's baby formula and you you want it to be safe. But also you have this like brittle distribution system. Make they, those make it really hard for new entrants to come into the market. So we've had you know two or three baby formula makers for decades because it's almost impossible to to get more competition in there. It's almost impossible to get more resiliency in there. So that's the those are the fundamental problems. Like we have a very a monopolized um, monopolized market structure. And the thing about monopolies is that whether it's Amazon or whether it's, you know, this weird kind of government regulatory baby formula type of model um, or whatever kind of market power element you're, you're looking at, you're really looking at a private government, right? And, um, or, you know, in some cases it's, it's you know. The, the private government mesh. being the, the baby formula seller Monopoly. in this case? Yeah, so, so in, in this case, it's like, it, you know, Abbott. In this case, it's actually not just a private government. It's a, it's a, uh, it's it's kind of a, a a monopoly that's actually fused with the power of government. Um, but this this kind of situation is not unusual, right? In this case, the federal government and state governments are are the sort of the power, what's called the power buyer in the situation. But you know, you can look at the power buyer. Could be Amazon. It could be Walmart. It could be you know, depending on what part of the market you're in. It could be a, a group purchasing organization. That's where a lot of hospitals get their supplies. It could be a pharmacy benefits manager if you're a, a pharmacist. But you know, it, it, there are lots of, of there are pretty much there are power buyers in, in almost every facet of our industry now. And those power buyers will often do the same thing that you're seeing the federal government does which is they'll hand out exclusive contracts in return for kind of better pricing. And this creates an incredibly 
brittle supply chain because when you hand out an exclusive contract, then you have only one player in the market. And if that one player in the market, they have some sort of problem at their factory, then boom, you got a shortage. And that's what we're seeing all over the economy, whether it's pharmaceuticals or ventilators or PPE or you know semiconductors or any number of different problems we've, we have or shortages we have, they're all a result of consolidation and then boom, the supply chain goes out and there's no resiliency. So, again, we're talking with Matt Stoller. You can check out his website, mattstoller.com. There's links to all his writing. So the the fundamental nature of this aspect of the problem, not the uh, handling of the contaminated baby formula and uh, that whole thing, it's that the the government gives out monopolies to individual baby formula manufacturers and essentially becomes slave to those manufacturers to fill the need in those communities, those states. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a fair way to put it. Uh, you know, they, the FDA probably knew that Abbott was screwing up. And my guess is Abbott was saying, what are you going to do? Shut us down? Like, you can't. Right. Right. But but if you're a new entrant and there are new entrants, like there's one company called Bobby, which makes, you know, organic or European style baby formula. And, you know, it took them five years to get in the market and it was hard. Right. And there's there's another one called Byheart. Same thing. Very hard, very hard to get a, set up a factory. Um, even if you don't set up a factory and use a contract manufacturer, it's really hard to get your product approved. But once you're in there. Right. I mean, these are niche players. Right. So they can't they can't scale. Uh, to to fill the needs, but once you're in there, once you're if you're Abbott or you're Reed Johnson or you're Nestle, then you can do whatever you want. Not whatever you want, but you can do a lot. And and the FDA is not gonna you know is not gonna stop you, or it's much harder for them to stop you because you have this market power. Interesting. Uh, talking with Matt Stoller. Check out his book, Goliath, worth, worth reading. Now, you mentioned European-style baby formula. One of the things that we've seen in the news the last uh, day or two is that uh, they are importing baby formula to the United States from Europe. Why was there a prohibition on importing baby formula from Europe to begin with? And will this step in bringing in this European baby formula, will that alleviate uh, this uh, this shortage that a lot of families are dealing with? Yeah, so we have slightly different regulatory systems uh, with the U.S. and, and Europe in, in lots of different areas. And that's true, like kind of all over the world. And I, I you know, the... Are we going to import? I, I don't think we're going to have a permanent. Um, well, first of all, we do import from Europe, and we we have. It's just that the factories that we import from have to be FDA certified, right? So, so Abbott has a big factory in Ireland, and uh, and it's FDA certified, so you can bring that the the stuff into the U.S. It's just the question is, do you want to be a, do you want to be bringing in baby formula from factories that are not FDA certified? If you do, then there are all sorts of implications, like if there is a recall um, or, or some sort of problem at that factory, how do you get that information to, you know, to the U.S., to the different um, entities that have brought that formula in or whatever those products are? You, like, there's just a lot of infrastructure that you have to set up, and we haven't done that. And then, you know, what if they don't do a good job regulating it? I mean, that's, that's another uh, a problem. So there are reasons why you want to make sure that if you do harmonize your regulations, that you know you you set up the infrastructure to do that. And I, I think there are probably reasons to allow more European baby formula in or not. 
But fundamentally, this is not an issue of trade. There's a lot of people that are mm. saying that this is a trade problem. But we have a lot of markets where there is lots of trade. For example, and this is the one I've been thinking about a lot, but you can I'm sure this is true across the board. A lot of medical supplies come in from um, come in from China. And uh, it's really a problem because, you know, right. you sole source it from China. And then, you know, right now, I think it's the contrast dye with the things, things you, what you need to do CAT scans. That all, a lot of that comes from one factory in Shanghai. It's a GE product. And there, isn't, there really isn't enough now. So, you know, doctors are screaming because they can't do CAT scans. So it's not an issue. This is not an issue of trade. This is an issue, this is an issue of resiliency and sole source supply. And so you can, you can have sole source supply, uh, you know, domestically. You can have sole source supply uh, inter- internationally. I mean, it's worse to be dependent if, if on, a, on a Chinese factory versus a, just a U.S. factory. But the, but the fundamental problem here is that it's a, it's a market power issue. It's a monopoly issue. It's not a trade issue. Understood. Uh, tell me about what Congress did. I know Congress took some action to alleviate this uh, this shortage. What exactly will that mean in practice? And do you think it will move the needle at all? Uh, they, you know, they did something to kind of make it slightly easier to import uh, baby formula. And you know, I don't think it really matters that much. Um, the Biden administration is flying in formula, which, you know, should be that should alleviate things. I mean, I think the issue really is that it's not that we don't have enough there. You know, you do need more nationally, but it's really about getting it into those regions where all of the infrastructure, all the sales, um, all the sales capacity, you know, all the all the bureaucracy is set up to sell Abbott formula and you, now you have to Abbott. There is no Abbott formula. You have to get something sure. else in there, and that's not. I don't know that that's really about getting formula from abroad, or you know whether whether it's just about making sure that that state agency takes advantage of waivers, and that the women that can that need to buy that formula can, you know, that that formula is in that state. Um, so that's where I'm a little bit fuzzy on it. Um, you know, I think that this shortage is going to be resolved fairly. Soon, but the problem that we have is, I mean, obviously it's a horrible situation for parents, as you well know. But um, you know, I think the problem here is that these kinds of shortages that we're seeing over and over and over. Uh, to, to, today it's going to be baby formula. Tomorrow it's going to be something else. Mm-hmm. It could be your blood pressure medication. It could be, you know, whatever it is that we we are in a situation now where we cannot get the things that we need because we have consolidated our supply chains in such an extreme way that we're just getting, you know, that, you, you know, when there's a hit to something, right? When it was Hurricane Maria a few years in Puerto Rico, it was saline solution, salt water, right? This is like, we're in a crisis right now of monopolization mm. and the symptoms are these shortages right now. Today, people are freaking out about baby formula. They're like, oh my gosh, how could the richest country in the world right. Have not have enough baby formula, but it's like, guys, we've been seeing this movie for like for years now. I mean, and it's, it's it's always a different it's a different product line. And today, it's it's parents who are freaking out, but there's lots of stuff that we need that we could maybe not be able to get tomorrow, and it, it may not be baby formula; it might be something else. So, so uh, quick question, just on the baby formula front, and then I want to follow up on what you've been saying uh, in terms of you know you don't know what's next, and any product could be next. Uh, President Biden's decision to use the Defense Production Act to get more baby formula done is that something that's going to help? 
I think so. I mean, I think all of these things will help. Uh, you know, th- just getting Abbott to be producing more will be useful just because, you know, all the, the infrastructure is set up to move Abbott products. And so it's things like, you know, the, the cans that they put baby formula in. So the Defense Production Act, what it does is it, is it says that the, um, the government can mandate that, you know, a certain buyer gets their products before any other, before anyone else. So if there's a certain type of can that, you know, Abbott Labs needs to buy for their baby formula and someone else wants to buy it, who makes, you know, whatever, say, mm. you know, canned peaches, Abbott Labs now gets, for, gets to be in line first. So it's like that with a whole bunch of things in the supply chains, whether it's trucks or cans or any, you know, any type of machinery, um, Abbott Labs and, and, uh, and Mead Johnson and, uh, and Nestle, they're all going to be, um, you know, they're going to be first in line. And so that should accelerate the ability to make enough and distribute enough baby formula, um, you know, fairly quickly. And you alluded to the fact that uh, it could be any number of a wide variety of products that, because of the monopolistic nature of our current markets, could be the next entity that uh, results in a severe shortage, including if it's something that's essential for people to live, uh, like uh, like baby formula is. What's the solution? How do we sort of demonopolize our economy so that this doesn't happen with uh, John Q product in the future? Yeah, I mean, so there was a story last night. Uh, it was 60 Minutes reported. It was, it was, uh, you know, a lot of chemo drugs, particularly for children, are out of um, that are that are cheap. They're generics. They're in shortage. Um, so it is, you know, it's really bad. Uh, the the answer, you know, we have laws on the books that are pretty good. They just haven't really been enforced. So we have antitrust laws that say that uh, exclusive contracts are illegal. And, you know, it's pretty hard to enforce that, but you can pretty much, you know, we can do a better job than we're doing. A lot of it is making sure that they don't, that for, you know, you don't have what are called power buyers. So I, you started off by ta- asking about Amazon and the kind of behavior I was offering with Amazon is uh, that that's the behavior of a power buyer who buys so much in the market that they can structure the market and then they can dictate to the supplier's terms. And usually what they'll do is they'll say, give us better prices. And in return, we'll give you a sole source contract or, or, or preferential placement. And that ends up thinning out the supply chain. In the case of baby formula, the federal government was acting as the power buyer. In other areas, it's, you know, there are different power buyers, but they all have the same dynamic, which is give us better pricing. We'll give you a sole source contract. And then that thins out the supply chain. Got so you get rid of that situation, right? You just say no more sole source contracts uh, or exclusive contracts. Then... The, a lot of the problem, and, and you get rid of the rebate in the, so that, you know, you can't get better, no discriminatory pricing. You do that, and then it's, it's, it the, goes a long way towards solving the problem. We have laws on the books that, you know, should do that, uh, so we just need to start enforcing mm-hmm. them. And then you can, also, you can also just pass, like, one thing I would love Congress to do is to just pass a law saying that anything that the FDA regulates, which are, we can assume that anything the Food and Drug Administration regulates, it's probably something that we need. It's food or drugs. Um, it, the, if you're a, if you're a power buyer, you have to be buying. Uh, you know, you can only buy twenty percent from one supplier or twenty five percent from one supplier. Like you have to you have to have at least three suppliers or something like that. That would just immediately mandate a lot more resiliency in a whole host of different areas, um, and then that would that would create 
uh, leverage for producers. They would get out more margin mm. and they would be able to kind of take care of their factories. But that's the one other thing I didn't mention, which is that if you are, um, this is particularly the case with pharmaceuticals, but if you have to sell to someone, right, and they, and they control the market and they keep taking more and more in fees, then you will, you will underinvest in your factory. You will underinvest in safety. And then the FDA will come in and say, gosh, your factory is really not well taken care of. We're going to have to shut you down and boom, mm. you have a shortage. So the, the, other, the other issue here is if you can't keep – if there's no competition, there's no margin for the producer, and then the producer ends up not being able to produce ultimately. Matt, uh, Matt so, I'm going to have to end it there. I very much appreciate the insight and the time this morning. I'll look forward to our next conversation. In the meantime, I'm just going to keep stealing your ideas from your uh, terrific Substack column. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. We'll take your calls next if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.